This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. Imagine you're at the doctor, you've been diagnosed with a disease, and you want to know more. But you're stuck writing notes back and forth with your physician. It takes a long time, and it's hard to get all the details. That's a situation people who are deaf in rural Colorado face frequently. Certified American Sign Language interpreters are scarce across the state. That shortage is especially acute outside the Front Range. The state is piloting the Rural Interpreting Services Project to increase access to interpreters. I'm joined by Timothy Chevalier and Trish Lakey with the Colorado Commission for the Deaf, Hard of Hearing, and Deaf Blind. Trish is deaf, and she's speaking with me through an ASL interpreter. Trish, can you start by telling me about the kinds of situations ASL interpreters are present for? Truthfully, any number of situations. Most frequently, we receive requests that are medically related. We also get appointments for mental health services, meetings. They might be between one person and another, just communicating with one another, but also for events. Legal situations are also critical. It may be a meeting with an attorney, or it could be an interview with someone in law enforcement. So any number of situations. And can you give me a sense of how severe the shortage is outside of the Front Range? How many people are interpreting and living in rural Colorado? Well, one example I might give is in Grand Junction. And that is a pretty significant community in our state. We believe there is about 60 deaf people living in that area that use American Sign Language. And there is one certified interpreter that is available to work full-time. And there is another interpreter that can be available on a part-time basis. But for 60 deaf people in that community, in considering all the number of situations which might arise for needing an interpreter, having one person available to provide interpreting is a challenge. If there aren't interpreters in a community, how are people who are deaf coping? It is really interesting for me on a personal level that having been born deaf, I grew up in Indiana. And back in that time, it was prior to the Americans with Disabilities Act. So those protections were not in place. We often relied on friends or family members to do interpreting. And times have changed. We do have a professional level and certified level of interpreters, which certainly is much better. But I am noticing that people within the rural areas, their life experience is very similar to what I experienced all those years ago growing up, that you look for whoever might be available. Maybe it's someone who took sign language, and they took sign language class maybe some time ago. But that might be who's available. Or maybe there's an interpreter who's working in the public schools that they might ask to come and interpret for them when they're not trained to do interpreting in a medical environment, for example, but they're the most available person and you do with what you've got. That is a totally different world than what we experience on the front range. They experience so many more barriers. And we're talking about interpreters who have been tested and certified by the Registry of Interpreters for the Deaf. That's really important. Timothy, you're the commission's outreach coordinator. For somebody who's never had to communicate through an interpreter, can you give an example of why it might matter that a person interpreting is certified and not just fluent in a language? We've had several 
examples. One, for example, an interpreter in a medical setting, uh, not certified, had interpreted for an individual that they were HIV positive and interpreted positive in a way to mean something positive. Positive as in good, like they don't have HIV? Exactly. That individual went home for several months, came back to the doctor afterwards and said, uh, you know, I'm, I'm feeling worse. I'm not feeling better. And so that's one example of the injustice that can be uh, that can occur when a non-certified interpreter is providing the service, and thus the state law is designed to protect deaf individuals from those types of incidents. And what about in situations outside of medicine? Can it also have an effect when people are talking to police or in the courtroom? Oh, yes, absolutely. An example would be of a deaf woman that was sexually assaulted. When law enforcement came, the person that was most readily available was her daughter. And the daughter was pulled into the situation as an interpreter, facilitating communication between law enforcement and her mother. Needless to say, the situation was awkward for her mother, and her mother didn't necessarily share all of the details. And when it came time to go to the station to give her a story to law enforcement about what occurred, the story uh, had more details. And as a result, it appeared to law enforcement that her story had changed. It, but as you can understand, the story had more information when she had an impartial, professional, qualified interpreter there that she felt that she could uh, elaborate further without feeling embarrassed. Mm, that sounds very difficult. Trish, how does the skill of the interpreter change your interactions with hearing people? Ah, oh, it makes such a huge difference. Some interpreters are just so skilled at being able to match exactly what I'm saying and express fully what I am saying and interpret it accurately. They know how to express what I'm saying from one language to the other in an appropriate tone and manner. An interpreter who's less experienced or not professional or not certified often will misunderstand or express what I'm saying in a more basic manner. And it certainly makes the deaf person look like they are not understanding or they're unintelligent or, you know, less educated. And I can only imagine how frustrating that would be. <laughs> Definitely. And now turning to your program... The Americans with Disabilities Act requires effective communication for individuals who are deaf, hard of hearing, and deafblind. So the state has actually set aside $1.4 million for this year and next year for a rural interpreting services project. Trish, what is this program doing to increase access to sign language interpreters in rural areas? The RISP program has three parts. The first part focuses on providing interpreting services. And that is at no charge to the local people in the area. Then we also are providing training as the second aspect. And we have five different training opportunities that we are providing in order to grow the number of interpreters statewide, particularly in the rural areas. The other part has to do with outreach. We have been traveling throughout the state and hosting town hall meetings to let people know about the Rural Interpreting Services Project and how access can be provided. What are you hearing from people who are attending those meetings about how they're dealing with the shortage of interpreters? We hear 
that they don't even know where to find or locate interpreters. Uh, if there isn't a, um, an interpreter available in our community, where do we go for an interpreter? If they find an interpreter available on the front range, they're confronted with the reality that weather may impede the interpreter um, even traveling across the mountains. So they can't even get to the community on time. So even the time of year has implications for them. Likewise, the added expense when travel time is added as well as mileage for the interpreter to do that travel, which increases the overall cost, which is a challenge in rural areas. And Timothy, Trish mentioned it can be hard for people to get access to an interpreter if, say, weather is bad. Can you give me other examples of everyday barriers people face? Well, oftentimes services simply are not provided and it becomes a problem when it's a call to the sheriff's office, or even a municipal court may not be able to provide an interpreter for a courtroom appearance. Um, We've had even domestic violence agencies addressing that concern in rural areas. And so it does become problematic when there's an urgent situation that cannot be adequately addressed with effective communication. And that hurts both parties. That hurts the sheriff, let's say, trying to investigate the situation, and that hurts the victim. And so it goes both ways. And that seems like an important piece of this. This is not just about people who are deaf in communities. This is about the effect on the entire community, including the people who are hearing in the community. Absolutely. And deaf people that do reside in those communities indicate that other deaf people that have relocated to that community, finding out that there's no services, move elsewhere. It is also a concern with the local deaf community, and it's a concern with the general community that wants to provide services and wants to be diverse and wants to open their community uh, to individuals that uh, have a different way of communicating. Trish, Timothy, it has been a pleasure having this conversation. Thank you both for being here. Thank you. Thank you. Timothy Chevalier and Trish Lakey. Trish was speaking to me through an interpreter there with the Colorado Commission for the Deaf, Hard of Hearing, and Deaf Blind. The state has committed $1.4 million to improving training for and access to qualified interpreters in rural Colorado. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Muslims and Jews in Morocco celebrate the end of Passover with a custom called Mimuna. It has spread to Moroccan Jewish communities around the world. Tomorrow, it's coming to Denver. Karen Aviv is with Judaism Your Way, which is hosting the celebration. She explains a bit about Mimuna's history. Morocco is a a dominant Muslim uh, majority country, and Jewish people have lived all over Morocco really since the first the destruction of the first temple in Jerusalem, which was 586 BCE, so about 2,500 years ago. Um, And so Jewish people all across Morocco lived with Muslim neighbors, mostly harmoniously and, and cooperatively. And so on Passover, Jewish people would often give their Muslim neighbors all of their leavened products with like wheat flour and to store them during Passover. 
as just a gesture of goodwill. And then Muslim neighbors would bring back all of the bread products that they had stored during Passover back to their Jewish neighbors and then celebrate together to end Passover with a Mimuna celebration. Aviv said that Mimuna highlights Muslim and Jewish cooperation. This year, that theme is particularly poignant. This is a really great moment to share and really highlight what we have in common more than what divides us. And we felt like these two communities have suffered in the past year um, with what happened at the Tree of Life synagogue shooting in Pittsburgh and also what just recently happened in Christchurch in New Zealand. And so Muslims and Jews, I think, are feeling vulnerable and scared. And we wanted to bring people together to say that we're stronger together and we're united and that we want to celebrate and have hope about the future. The celebration features traditional Moroccan food, as well as music and dancing. Shlomit Levy and Rabbi Sol will perform, and they'll be debuting their new song, Yemeni. celebration begins at 7 p.m. tomorrow at the Temple Sinai in Denver. Walk into any advanced class in Colorado High School and there are a lot of white faces. CPR education reporter Jenny Brundine brings us the story of what's stopping many students of color from taking advanced classes and what one student in Boulder County decided to do about it. High school senior Anise Medrano walks onto the giant stage at CU Boulder. When the music stops, she starts a TED-style talk. During middle school, I was a smartass. <laughs> Medrano was smart. Not like a super-achieving student, you know, the ones teachers notice. So in her advanced classes, she says she disrupted class, came in late, got detentions. Why? I didn't have the self-confidence at the time. And so I wanted somebody, adults especially, to reaffirm me in who I was. She compared herself to the white kids. She couldn't relate to them, noticed that they got support from home. Her parents didn't know how to help her study or write an essay, and they didn't speak English. Her freshman year at Centaurus High School in Lafayette, her first period class was advanced English. There were no other students of color, so Madrano covered up her discomfort by acting tough and going through extremes to get through the class. I had, like, no friends at all. So my skill was, like, get high before school, come into class high during that first period, and then just avoid all those emotions of awkwardness and uncomfortableness and not have to lean into those feelings and face those fears that I had. She says she had two identities, Latina and being smart, but the two seemed separate. I feel that other people think it's not common for students of color to be intelligent. 
So I think when you're both, you don't really fit in and other people don't really see you that way. The identities began merging into one when she discovered an organization called Public Achievement. It's supposed to help young people find their voice. Along with a CU Boulder mentor, students dig into a year-long inquiry, like immigration, bullying, or body shaming. We sat in a circle. And his first question back was, at her TED Talk, Medrano remembers back to the day in public achievement, she and her friends first shared their experiences as first-generation students of color in a predominantly white class. My friends shared about times when others would make comments like, you do this pretty well for English being your second language, or are you sure you don't need help? This is an advanced class. She realized other kids were experiencing what she was just learning the words to describe. That was the project she wanted to work on. That was like an aha moment. So she and her friends decided to find out why students of color weren't in those advanced classes. We started by sending out surveys and talking to classes and talking to teachers and attending staff meetings and being like, this is a problem and showing the statistics. The school's international baccalaureate program had just 25 students of color out of 186. That's a problem statewide. And research shows it can have a big impact on students later in life. Confidence, school engagement, college graduation, advanced classes affect all of those. So her team researched barriers to taking advanced classes, like the costs for AP tests, poorly translated information for Spanish-speaking parents, and says Public Achievement Director Sharla Agnoletti. Whose brilliance do teachers see? And how do we oftentimes look through cultural lenses that don't allow us to see the brilliance and intelligence of young people of color in the same ways that we might with young white students. Her junior year, Medrano and her crew decided to enroll in the IB program. Today we do have general relativity. Medrano sits in the class, one of six students of color in an IB theory of knowledge class. The wavelength, the heat wavelength. Academically, she doesn't deny it's hard. Sometimes she feels she doesn't have the same cultural background the white kids do. There's a feeling she still has. It is feeling like you don't belong and feeling like all eyes are on you. You have to prove that you were worthy enough of being in that classroom and sitting with those overachieving students. But she loves the class. She says she feels way more comfortable with even six kids of color in the class. She says she couldn't have finished the IB program without her crew. They supported and encouraged one another along the way. That is my journey for the past four years. From the smart-ass kid to the IB candidate and difference maker. Even now, after giving a public talk, coaching younger students in public achievement, Medrano still has self-doubts, but she practices saying this. I am capable. You know, I am enough. And soon enough, proving to myself that, yeah, I am. And I don't need others to tell me that. Anise Medrano will attend CU Boulder in the fall. I'm Jenny Brending, Colorado Public Radio News. The process of creating art is sometimes called organic, and in this case, it really is. A large-scale art installation made of saplings. It opens tomorrow at Denver Botanic Gardens Chatfield Farms. CPR reporter Natalia Navarro got a sneak peek of a giant 12-foot immersive sculpture. Hi, Natalia. Hey, Avery. What was it like? It was pretty fantastical, I think is the word that I'll have to use for this. 
Artist Patrick Doherty creates these giant sculptures with his son out of twigs, saplings, branches. Um, This one was sort of a labyrinth structure. It made me feel like a fairy or a hobbit in some sort of (laughs) magical world. Um, All the twigs and branches are just woven together in these beautiful sweeping arches that create these crisscross paths with nooks and crannies to walk around in windows to stick your head out of and um, it really is wonderful inside it smells like a forest after it's rained or something it's that damp wood smell Um, this is how the artist described a corner of the piece that he really liked I like the various hallways we have, like in this, where you have lots of doors and windows coming together. You look up and you have a sense of the sky above you through entanglement. And those are quarters because they're like houses, so they have corners in the artwork. What inspired his work? Um, This is actually his 300th large-scale piece, um, and it's actually Chatfield Farm's first art installation. Um, I caught up with Doherty inside his creation, His original vision was the coils of a Colorado rattlesnake, but he didn't really stick to that plan. I got the sense that he he likes a starting point, but he doesn't necessarily like to stick with it through the whole thing. He goes with the flow. Um, But something else that really inspired him was the idea of childhood. He made a lot of the parts of the wooden hallways smaller to appeal to children, like little things they can climb in and out of. Uh, The rest is intended to bring us back to our own childlike imaginations, like remembering when you were in that phase when you would play with sticks and build things out of them. Um, He posits that the sticks can even bring back adults to that nostalgic feeling of playing outside, that a stick can become a shelter or a sword or whatever. They can take one stick and make a world. I always feel like when I see kids work so fully with sticks without any instruction from their parents, they must be replaying their hunting and gathering past and that we all have that inside us that's rooted in our ancient feelings. That is fantastic. Just briefly, do you know how long these structures will last? Um, The Botanic Garden says the sculpture will remain where it is until it just naturally falls apart. Uh, They're guessing this will probably be in just over two years because of Colorado's dry climate. CPR reporter Natalia Navarro. Colorado Democrats want to make voter registration so automatic you may not even realize you're registered until a ballot arrives in your mailbox. The plan is working its way through the state capitol. Proponents say that it would make voting even more inclusive in Colorado. But as CPR's Sam Brash reports, not all voter advocates are on board. Across the country, automatic voter registration is catching on. The policies differ state to state, but they all have one thing in common. They don't ask eligible voters whether they want to register. Instead, they ask people if they don't want their information added to the voter rolls, usually at a DMV. Colorado has had just such a system in place since 2017, but some think it's already due for an update. So we want to make registering to vote as convenient as possible. This is Amanda Gonzalez, executive director for Colorado Common Cause, a good government group. She notes that under the current system, you're asked at the DMVs or at the DMV website if it's okay for the state to update your voter information. 
And we're seeing a higher decline rate than we would expect. Last month, about 31,000 people who weren't on the voter rolls declined to register at DMVs, about a quarter of all transactions. That means there's a lot of people Gonzalez would love to see register at the DMV, but they're deciding not to. It makes us wonder what's going on there. Is it that people are just sad because they're at the DMV and they want to get out of there, so they're clicking no to get out of there? Doesn't sound implausible. Anyway, Colorado Democrats want to redesign the system to capture those people. Democratic State Senate Majority Leader Steve Fenberg is sponsoring the bill. Uh, What this will do is follow up with that voter with a postcard, and that is when they will uh, officially be given the option to decline to to register to vote. And here's the important part. Let's say you don't return that postcard. After 20 days, the state would add you to the voter rolls automatically. The bill would also expand that program to state Medicaid offices. And we are, you know, somewhat wary of having people rely on sorting through the mail that is sent to them. This is Sean Morales-Doyle, a lawyer with the Brennan Center for Justice. And just to be clear, he's a big fan of automatic voter registration. His organization just completed a study of the systems in different states and found they all increased registrations. That includes what Colorado's been doing for the last two years. There was a roughly 16% increase in registrations it is working very well. We just think if, if it's going to be expanded, we don't think there's any need to sort of introduce untested tweaks to that method. The key comparison for Morales-Doyle is Oregon. It uses the system Democrats are pushing for, where people opt out through the mail. But the study found that approach didn't raise registration rates any more than what Colorado has now. Nothing about those numbers tells us that one or other of these opt-out systems is more or less effective. So he says choose the one with the least room for error. Republican State Senator Jerry Sonnenberg has similar concerns. He's especially worried about two groups. My main concern is we are creating a system that is forcing people to register to vote that may not want to, as well as allowing voters that may not be legally entitled to vote that will slip through the cracks. Advocates counter their plan includes required database checks for anyone added, which could better prevent non-citizens from ending up on the voter rolls. And for those concerned about privacy, you can always mask your information in the system or withdraw it entirely. But Sonnenberg says there's something else at stake personal responsibility. If you want to vote, absolutely, we want to help you do that. But to tell you that you're going to be registered unless you fill out this postcard that we're going to send you sometime afterwards is a crazy way for us to do business. But Democrats say for too long, the onus to register has fallen on individuals, and the result is a less inclusive electorate. If their bill goes through, someone renewing their license in August might discover they're now a voter come November. I'm Sam Brash, CPR News. Spring has sprung, and summer will be here before we know it. Is your garden ready? Let's find out from CSU Extension Master Gardener Lonnie Godet. She's here to answer your gardening questions as she does each season Hi, Lonnie. Hi, thanks so much for having me. We've received a lot of questions from listeners via social media, so let's dive right in. Okay. My name is Emily Spence-Davison. I live in Denver, Colorado. My question for the Master Gardener is, what are some suggestions about shrubs or bushes that I can put in my front yard that won't require a lot of maintenance and that will look like something that's alive uh, at least a couple months out of the year? And I've had two hydrangeas for the past like three years, and they pretty much just come back every year, but they don't actually grow. 
Well, we have a lot of great options. Hydrangeas are lovely, but they do require a bit more water and a little shade. So that might be part of their problem, or there could be some problems with planting. But for some that we know are very consistent and give you a lot, I would suggest nine barks. They're a really nice shrub. They're natives. They range in colors from these beautiful red-purple leaves down to lime green. So you've got a great variety that you can choose from. Plus, there's a lot of different sizes, depending on where in your yard you're going to put them. You always want to pick a plant that's going to fill up that space without overtaking it. Others I would recommend would be Apache Plume, which is a native, doesn't like to be watered after it's established. And it's a really neat one. It's got these great seed heads all over it that look like um, clematis seed heads, where they're kind of feathery. And it gives this kind of plume or smoke look to the whole bush. It can be a little messy looking. So for some people, they don't want that in their yard. But personally, I love it. I think it's a wonderful shrub. Um, Another thing to remember would be use your ornamental grasses because they give us a lot of winter interest even when they're not actively growing in green. We get these great seed heads. We get structure. And it gives the birds a little bit of a shelter too. One of uh, the shrubs I'm really liking right now is the Crandall's Current. I've got a a row of them in my yard that are just starting to bloom, and it's got this fantastic clove fragrance that you can smell all the way across the yard. And then in the fall, we get some red color to the leaves. It's drought-tolerant, and you get berries that you can eat. So you really can't ask for much more out of a shrub. All of these are low-maintenance. They're fairly low water usage. They are mostly for sun. If you had shade, you could think of the Daphnes, and some of our dwarf evergreens will take quite a bit of shade. Everybody thinks about junipers as those big things that cover the front of your house, but we have some great varieties of juniper that stay, well, a variety of sizes, but a lot of them are quite small, and they can give you that evergreen look in your yard for winter so that you're not just a one-season yard. And what about those hydrangeas that Emily mentioned, the ones that are not doing well? Again, because it's hard to know what the problem is. Um, It could be a problem with soil where she needs to run a soil test and maybe take a look at her soil amendment. Or when she planted them, if they were tightly root bound and she didn't try and pull that root ball apart, they may not be getting the amount of water they need because the, the root ball will help expel water just because those tight packed roots on the edges. And is there anything that if you've planted it and the root ball is too tight, can you do anything after the fact? Yeah, dig it up. Dig it up, tear it apart, and replant it, and get a soil test just to make sure that there's nothing specific about your soil that's causing a problem. And check your watering, because they do require more water than a lot of the other shrubs I mentioned. And Emily also asked whether she should prune her butterfly bushes now that winter is over. And we've had some other folks who want to know about springtime pruning. Yeah, so springtime pruning, if if your plant blooms early in the spring, typically you would want to prune those later in the fall because they're blooming on that. Well, I should clarify. If they bloom on new wood, which butterfly bush, bush does, you want to prune it pretty hard in the spring so that it gets that nice new growth and then you get a lot of flowers. But something like a lilac that blooms on last year's wood, you want to wait till after it's done blooming. And so typically we see a lot of those in the spring, your forsythias and your lilacs. You want to prune them after they bloom so that next year you get great blooms again. And that brings me to a question I'm wondering about. It's the idea that we shouldn't plant flowers and other plants until after Mother's Day, which is May 12th this year. Mm -hmm. Is that true, generally speaking? Well, that requires a little clarification. So your perennials, your trees and shrubs 
I actually prefer to plant those in March and April. I think that our cooler temperatures help them establish. But if you're talking about your tender annuals, your vegetable garden plants, your flowers in your baskets, absolutely. Mother's Day is a good rule of thumb, unless it's something that you can bring inside in case we have one of our strange weather incidents where it freezes. And I shouldn't call them strange because it happens here all the time. So it's particularly true in Colorado where we have weather swings. Let's move from the yard to the apartment. Okay. Hello, this is Luke Simonson from Denver. I am a balcony vegetable gardener. I have a southerly exposure for the first time this year. In the past, only tomatoes and jalapenos seem to work very well. I'm wondering if the south-facing balcony will improve my success with a wider variety of vegetables. And any advice about patio or balcony gardening in general would be great. Thanks. So yeah, a south-facing balcony can give you a lot of options. You're going to have a lot of sunshine, but you're also going to have a lot of heat. So at some point, you may end up wanting to put up a bit of shade cloth on your balcony to give your plants some afternoon shade or even some misters like you can get from the hardware store to help keep that temperature more regulated because that can get pretty toasty up there. You'll definitely want to check your watering every day because containers tend to dry out quickly. And in your containers, you're going to want to use what we call a a soilless media. So it's more like a a planter's, uh, not a planter's mix, but the kind that you would buy in a garden center specifically for containers. If you're using soil from out in a yard, that can be too heavy. It doesn't drain really well, and it can cause problems for your plants. So on your balcony, the neat things that you can do, you can use your balcony railing if you have one as a trellis for your tomatoes or for squashes. There's a great document. If you Google CSU Plant Talk 1838, that is a list of really good vegetable types for container gardens. We've got... um, squash that are bush type varieties so you don't have that monster zucchini taking over your patio because nobody really wants that. (laughs) And then you might think about tomatoes of the determinate variety. These are a bush type tomato versus the indeterminate which make vines. Although the vines you could grow up onto your, your balcony trellis again. We also have a couple of interesting questions about weed barriers and mulch. Let's start with mulch. My name is Dan Gravy from Wheat Ridge, Colorado. My question is about whether or not you recommend mulching the annual vegetable beds. I know that oftentimes perennial gardens get mulched, but people don't always mulch their veggie gardens. And if you do recommend mulching, what are the best materials, in your opinion? If the leaves from the previous year are all gone, what you suggest using? Mulching vegetables is actually a really good idea. It helps to regulate your soil temperatures and your soil moisture content. Now, you've mentioned a really good point that we might want to use a different material for vegetables than we do for perennials or trees or shrubs because they are, I'd call them finer in texture, your vegetable plants. You want to use a finer textured mulch. I've used ground up pine needles or spruce needles make a really nice mulch. But what CSU often will recommend is taking your grass clippings and letting them dry out a bit. Because if you don't, if you put a pile of grass clippings together, you know, it makes that stinky mat. But letting them dry out a bit and then using those in your vegetable bed because it's easy to turn them in when needed. They help to 
give nutrients back to the soil, and you have this constant source all through the summer. So as they break down, you can just add a new layer of dried grass clippings. Now there's two caveats. If you have dogs in your yard, you may want to use the clippings from the part of your yard where your dogs don't use the bathroom <laughs> since this is a vegetable garden. And that you... um do not use grass clippings where you've used any type of a an herbicide. So if you've gone to um, control your weeds, your dandelions, and you've put down a weed and feed, you definitely don't want to use those grass clippings. Because that'll hurt the vegetables exactly. as well. Exactly. And speaking of keeping weeds under control, we've got this question. Hi, my name is Nancy Kristoff, and I'm from Denver. And my question today is in regards to weed control and landscape fabric. I read on Twitter that you're not supposed to use landscape fabric anywhere in your yard for anything for any reason ever. And I'm wondering if this is true and why and what should we do to control weeds? Thanks. That is such a good question. First of all, I'd like to address the ever and never because in gardening there are rarely such hard hard cast rules. However, uh, there is a time and a place for landscape fabric, but typically it's under patios when you're laying out something like a flagstone patio or under a walkway. But where you have plants, I would agree that, well, there's two articles I really like to refer to, and you can find both of them on the internet. The first one is called Weed Fabric is a Weed, and the second one is called Keep the Fabric in Your Closet and Off of Your Soil. The reason for not using landscape fabric, it reduces your oxygen and water transport into your soils, and this creates a situation that's really not healthy for your plants. You you create compaction in your soils. The landscape fabric, if it's not allowing moisture through, well, your plants aren't getting the water they need, so the roots typically will stay up by the surface where they're more easily damaged. The other problem is you're not. it doesn't allow you to top dress your soil with compost or amend your soil. And it prevents your worms from doing their job because there's not enough oxygen for them and the soil is too compact. And eventually, it will not keep the weeds out. It will, you will have a layer of mulch on top of your landscape fabric and we'll get a lot of our blown-in dust. And then the weed seed will blow in and grow right on top of the landscape fabric. We're speaking with CSU Master Gardener Lonnie Godet. She's answering your spring gardening questions. And Lonnie, let's get to an issue so pressing, several people have asked about it. Uh Uh-oh. Leanne Colosiopo, Denver. I'd like to know why cilantro is so hard to grow here and what it takes to make it successful. Mine always goes to seed before I ever get to harvest it. Cilantro is a difficult herb to grow. Having spoken with several other friends, I don't grow it because I've failed at it several times. And I've decided finally that it's easier to buy. But what you have to understand about cilantro, two things. First of all, it likes really cool weather. And the minute it gets warm at all, it's going to bolt or go to seed like you mentioned. The other part is that it does not like to have wet feet. So here we have a plant that doesn't like to be hot and doesn't like to be wet. It likes kind of cooler, drier temperatures. So for this reason, we always want to wait and let our plants get up to a certain amount before we start to eat them, but we really just need to eat the cilantro the minute it starts coming up, as far as I can tell. And then you can do some successive plantings, like you can plant a bit one week and then a bit the next week so that you get more to use over a longer period of time. But for the most part, it's a quick quick herb that needs to be used as quickly as you can. And you may recognize the name of our last question asker. She's the editor of the Denver Post. And it is good to know why cilantro is so hard to grow. Now to a garden favorite. 
Elizabeth Summers, Edgewater. I want to know the best varieties of tomatoes to grow in Colorado. And also, do I need to rotate my crops if I am amending the soil every year? You know, tomatoes are such a perennial favorite in our vegetable gardens, and not literally a perennial, though. It really depends on what you like to eat, because I know people who love their big beefsteak tomatoes, and there are people who love their cherry tomatoes, and sometimes you just, like me, you love all of them. There's, we have shorter seasons, so sometimes looking at a smaller tomato or one that has a short date to harvest when you look at their seed packet is a good idea. If you're looking to start your tomatoes early in the season, then you might want to look at some from either Russia or Ukraine, where they've developed some great Um, cold-resistant tomatoes, varieties such as Glacier and Black Icicle. And I haven't tried these two myself, but I'm real curious about them. Um, You can often find, there's a taste of tomato that happens in Boulder, kind of late summer, and it's a great place to go and taste different varieties to find out what you really want to, what you like to eat so that you know what you want to buy. Um, I personally, I love Carmelo, and Piglet Willie's French Black has been my favorite for a number of years. But I think from last year, we talked about the sweet tangerine tomato. And it really is one of my favorites right now because it's got a great um, combination of acid and sweetness. It ripens really uniformly, and it's a great producer. So finding what works in your microclimate, Edgewater is one particular part of Denver. But if you head over towards Golden, you're going to find a different variety that grows better. They really are fussy and specific to where they want to be. So tasting is the best way to find out what you want to grow and then looking at their days to harvest and seeing what other people in your close neighborhood are successful with. And another listener, Chris, asked via Twitter, why have I always had trouble growing bell peppers and raised beds in Denver? Well, that's interesting because bell peppers typically do like our climate. And unfortunately, we don't have enough information from Chris's um, post to tell us what problem is happening. Is the plant failing to grow or is it growing and then maybe not producing fruit or is it growing and then developing a virus? There's a lot of different issues that could be going on here and unfortunately we don't have enough information to go on. But what Chris could do is take some pictures either from last year if if they have them or from this year if they grow the peppers again and send those to their local Master Gardener help desk and ask them to help diagnose this problem. Now, we've got a question about just getting started in the first place. I'm Joella Bauman. I'm a news fellow at CPR, and I live in Denver. I've never had a garden before, but I have a plot at my community garden. For someone who definitely isn't a green thumb or knowledgeable about growing, where do I start? Well... You start with what do you really want to get out of your garden? Do you want to enjoy flowers? Do you want to enjoy vegetables? And with a community plot like that, it's typically going to be annuals of some type. You're not looking at perennials and shrubs. So what are you going to get the most enjoyment out of? Then as far as being a new gardener, you're you're going to have mistakes. You're going to have failures. And it is perfectly okay because every one of those failures is a chance to learn. So I see this as the whole season of learning or a season of failure. The potential is limitless. But what you want to look at is what, are, what do you want to eat if you're going to plant vegetables? What do you want to have in your kitchen for cut flowers? And go around to the garden centers and, and start there. 
finding the plant material, but then also use your resources. We have a lot of online resources with CSU Extension, and we also have the Master Gardener help desks in every county that you can call into or you can email as well. And this idea that it is okay to fail, that's really comforting to me. I'm very new at gardening. I'm growing basil from a seed for the first time this season. Um, But what about flower gardens? Are there good ones to start for for beginners? Oh, for beginners, absolutely. Things like zinnias do really well in the Denver area. They like our heat. They like a lot of sun. Petunias. You'll see when you're walking down the street in a lot of the different cities, they will have the big flower bins and the planters along the streets, and you can get some great ideas from that. Um, Sunflowers. Everybody seems to love a good sunflower, and there's a lot of varieties from very, very tall to very small, so you can fit your garden to that sunflower, or fit that sunflower to your garden, actually. And There's just so much variety, and you don't have to have just one or just the other. You can mix them. I love mixing marigolds in with my vegetable gardens or sweet peas or something I can eat like a nasturtium. And are there specific vegetables that grow well here and are easy for Mm -hmm. someone who doesn't have experience? Yes. Uh, The root crops do really well here. So things like your carrots, your beets, parsnips, uh, greens do very well here, kale, Swiss chard, those tend to take our heat really well. The lettuces for the early season, there are some heat-resistant lettuces as well. You just have to look at your seed packets or look at the tag if you're buying as a plant in the in the garden center. I also want to ask about drought-resistant plants. What are the trends related to plants that are easy to care for, that don't take a lot of water, and that they can withstand these intense sunshine days? Mm -hmm. So the shrubs that we talked about earlier were all in that category. But when you're starting to look at the perennials, you could go to the Plant Select website, particularly. Those plants are all tested in our area. And we have, like some of my favorites, chocolate flower is one of my favorites. Just this little perennial, it sprawls out a little bit, it reseeds a little but not obnoxiously, and it smells like chocolate in the morning when the sun first hits it. And I think it's fabulous. I don't water it. It just shows up here and there, and it just does its thing without much input from me. And the same thing with liatris, which are the tall purple spikes you might see if you go hike out in the plains a lot, um, even in the mountains some. But the liatris and the chocolate flower together make a great combination because you've got your yellow purple, you've got a little shorter and a little taller, um, different textures and different compositions. I need to look into getting a plant that smells like chocolate. That I know. amazing. It's the best. Plant, oh. Right where you're going to walk by it every day. <laughs> How about you, Lottie? What have you have planted for your garden this year? Well, I'm taking a little bit of a rest year. I am putting most of my vegetable beds into annual flowers, just seeding them out with zinnias and cosmos and very simple flowers and just a little bit of vegetables, just enough to keep keep my fingers in the dirt. Mostly I'm working on maintenance this year. I'm just going to be weeding and moving plants as they need to and trimming back. I've got a lot of other things going on. And so this year, my goal is to enjoy what I've done over the last 10 years in this yard and spend more time sitting in the yard and just appreciating it. Mm. And any final words of advice about spring gardening this season, especially for anyone who's feeling overwhelmed or nervous that they might kill their plants or just that they don't have enough time to keep this all going? I can appreciate all of those. I, I kill things regularly. I try things, I kill things, and I learn from it. And it's 
That's part of gardening. It's it's about the process as much as it is having beautiful flowers to look at and smell. Um, a lot of us coming out of the winter, we're starting up this activity that we might not have been working at all winter long. Take breaks, drink water, wear a hat and sunscreen. Thank you, Lonnie. Thank you. CSU Extension Master Gardener Lonnie Godet joins us seasonally to answer your gardening questions. That's Colorado Matters for today from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. Thank you.